0: appreciate the song service this morning as well as Brother Dwayne's humble prayer. I have a subject on my mind that I, I, I want to talk to you about that came to me from watching TV. <clears throat> and my prayer, of course, is that the Lord, either through me or in spite of me, will bless you with what he knows you stand in need of. I, I don't know what's on each one of your hearts, but he does. And whatever I say, he can deliver a message to you. Uh, that benefits you, and that's my prayer. Is that that's how he will use me. Uh, you know, I, we all like some everybody watches TV and they have their favorite shows. And of course, being an attorney, my shows are always the uh, law and order shows, and 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 those involving the courtroom practice and uh, things like that. Because I I enjoy <coughs> being an attorney. I Always enjoy the cross examination. That's one thing you that <coughs> lawyers are probably best known for uh generally is that uh, the uh, cross-examination issue how they take a witness not friendly and cross examine them Uh, as a general rule when you go to law school you know we all are taught basically kind of how to prepare a witness and and bring them to but that's your witness that's a friendly witness and generally you know that if it's your attorney and they're asking you questions it's going to be friendly questions but it always comes up as well when when you're turned over to the other side's attorney And you're asked unfriendly questions hostile questions we call that cross-examination sometimes and i've been in that boat a time or two when i've had to testify that uh myself that it gets tougher when you're on the spot and and questions are coming at you from somebody who you know is not your friend they're going to ask you hostile questions uh you know that's the the thing about all these courtroom places but perry mason was famous for his cross-examination of witnesses you know that's what. Most trials focus in on, not as on the direct witnesses, but on the cross-examination, because that's where all the drama is, and that's where, allegedly, all the real truth comes out. In thinking about that, and just watching that, I was thinking recently about, you know, Christ had to endure cross-examination. He had to endure hostile questions. And in looking at these, I've identified four questions that he was asked. He was asked a number of questions in the Bible uh, throughout, and, and I, 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 I realized that we learn a lot when Christ was questioned and he had to answer those questions. You know, there in John 14, when he was getting ready to leave, they were, His apostles were asking him, where are you going? And he was explaining, you know, you can't go with me now, but you'll be able to go with me later, and I'm going to go in to my father's house, where many mansions are prepared for you. And Pilate asked him, you know, talked about his kingdom. He said, my kingdom is not of this world, uh, letting us know he had a spiritual kingdom. Christ always, when he answered questions, he gave us great insights into his plan and the Lord's plan for our salvation and the Lord's plan for our how we should conduct our lives daily. So, in doing in, in thinking about that, I have singled in on four questions, starting in Matthew chapter 22, four questions, three of them in Matthew and then one over in Luke, and that's the one I want to really get to. But questions that were asked of him and. And if we look at his answers, we get some real insights into this overall plan that he has for us in this world and in the next world, how our eternal salvation works. Matthew 22, he was getting close to the time before he was to be crucified. And uh, the Pharisees we know were undefended. Pharisees, the two Jewish tri- Jewish leaders, political leaders at that time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were unhappy with him. Now, they were both Jewish leaders, and they, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, were the political, like Republicans and Democrats today. They were the political tribes of the Jewish people back uh, in the biblical times, and they disagreed a lot. They had the same Bible, but they had major disagreements over the interpretation of it. We wonder today why Republicans and Democrats don't get along. All you've got to do is go back and study the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and you'll see they've never been getting along. There's always been a division. Every time, there's always two sides to everything, whether it's the Sadducees, the Pharisees, or the Whigs and the Tories in the days of England. Our Republicans and Democrats, if you go over to the Muslim countries, they have the Shiites and the Sunnis. Uh, Even in biblical times, between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Even today, we have the Calvinists and the Armenians all reading the same Bible, yet we end up with two different interpretations of it. So in Matthew 22... Uh, Of course, neither the Sadducees nor the Pharisees liked Christ because he was talking about a new kingdom and him being the king. They didn't want to be displaced. They were the leaders of the religious leaders. They didn't want Christ taking their place, so they didn't like him. So they decided to get together and ask him a series of questions in front of a crowd in the temple here. And They were going to ask him a question beginning in Matthew 22, verse 15. He's been preaching and talking and teaching parables in the synagogue, in the temple, I mean, excuse me. And now we see that uh, verse 15, it says, and they were unhappy because people were believing him and people were listening to him. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were the religious leaders. So they wanted people listening to them, not to this new guy, Christ. Verse 15 says, Then went the Pharisees and took counsel. They got together and figured out, how are we going to ask this guy questions? Said said, then went the Pharisees took counsel, how they might entangle him in his talk. They clearly want to get him mixed up and tangled. try to show the people this guy's not really who he says he is. It's not the truth. So they want to confuse him. They, they're hostile to him. They don't like him. They want to ask him cross-examination and put him on the spot. And they sent unto him their disciples, the Pharisees, some of their disciples, along with the Herodians. The Herodians were another Jewish group who weren't particularly religious. They liked King Herod. They like the government. That's that's the people who are you know, not really religious, but they love government. I think of this as lobbyists and people who work, going to Austin and lobbying and, and, and working in government and loving politics. You know, I, I find myself in that boat sometimes. I enjoy politics and I enjoy working with uh, government officials. That's who these Herodians were. They didn't really care about religion all that much, but they enjoyed uh, uh, working for Rome, working for the Roman government. You know, Matthew, when he was... Before he was called a disciple, he was a tax collector. He was a Jewish person that was a tax collector. The Jews generally didn't like the Roman government. They didn't want the government telling them what to do. And Matthew was not really friendly with them. He was a tax collector. And, of course, that's how one reason Jesus recruited him to be an apostle. He didn't recruit him. He named him, chose him. You know, we also have Simon the Zealot was one of Christ's apostles. Simon the Zealot means they were zealous for the Jewish faith. They didn't want Rome interfering at all. And yet Christ picked these two people who would otherwise be enemies, be political enemies, Matthew, the tax collector for the Roman government, and Simon, the zealot for the Jews. So, but only could Christ pick such a diverse group of men and bring them all together for him. And there's a, there's a lesson for, for us in the church, too. You know, we don't always agree, agree politically on a lot of things, but we all come together for Christ because he's, he's not focused on politics. He's focused on us and loving us our unconditional love. But the Pharisees went together, and they sent their disciples along with Herodians, and they asked him. And first of all, they're going to try to flatter him a little bit, and this is insincere flattery, much like everybody does when they approach the king or a congressman or a president. Everybody always brags on them and how smart they are, and you're just flattering him, and it's really unsincere flattery. They say, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the, right, the person of men. They kind of gave that a bad slang. you know. And God doesn't put any preference on men, women, uh, Jew, Gentile, uh, bond or slave. slave. They're all uh, slave or free. I mean, they're all one in Christ. We know He's taught us that. He doesn't regard one person over the other. They're all His children that He uh, wants. And so that's a, a takeoff of that, but that's a basic true statement. And they said next, "Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar, or not? Is it lawful to pay tax?" Caesar the reason this is a trick question is this is a uh, it's one of those lawyers call are you still beating your wife question whichever way he answers it they're going to get him and, you know it's like you're still beating your wife ask them if you're still beating your wife and they say no and I said okay but you did beat her you're not still beating her but you did it one time or if he says yes then you're still beating your wife either way you're going to look bad in the eyes of people listening this way they're saying is it is it proper to pay tax to Caesar well, the Jewish people out there didn't care for Rome, didn't like the Roman leadership. If he says yes, then they're going to be mad at him because they don't, we don't want to pay tax to Caesar. <coughs> but the Herodians here did like Caesar, and if he answers it, yes, it is proper, then uh, if it's proper to pay tax, it'll make the Jewish people happy. But if it's not proper, they're going to go tell the Roman authorities, this guy's out here telling people they shouldn't have to pay taxes to Caesar. Either way, he answers it, he's going to be in trouble. Of course, before we get into this, being a lawyer, I, I, you know, we all enjoy, lawyers enjoy cross-examination. Jesus is not one person I'd want to try to cross-examine. One thing lawyers are supposed to know, you're supposed to know the answer of questions before you ask. They didn't know that. They didn't take that to heart. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Is it proper to pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt me, ye hypocrites? Show me a tribute money. And they brought him a penny. He took out a coin and said it held up a penny. And he says, Now whose image is on that? And they said, Caesar's. He said, So your very money, the money that you pay with, belongs to Caesar. And then he makes this great statement that you've all heard. Render unto Caesar, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar, and render unto God the things that are God's. He didn't answer at all like they thought, but he answered the right way. You know, Paul tells us over here that we are to obey our government's laws and rules. We don't like it we go change them, but we are to be good civil servants within the government. There's a law, we're supposed to try to obey it if we can. Every now and then, you know, we've got some countries that that have laws that are against God, and, and, you know, Peter later gives us examples of, of when we don't do that. But he said, yeah, you're to pay your taxes. Now, if you really focus on that, that gets a little touchy, doesn't it? Anybody in here ever take a deduction you weren't entitled to or forgot to claim some cash income as income on your tax return statements? It gets a little tricky when you start focusing in on this. You get a little, he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If it's proper under the tax code, then you you don't, but you pay your taxes that are due. Anybody ever had a garage sale and once that money didn't get reported on your tax return? I'm asking these questions myself. I've got some of the same issues here. But Christ says this for all of us. If it's the law, we ought to follow the law. It. But it gets a little personal when we start thinking about ourselves. But it doesn't get near as personal as it's about to get when he says, And render unto God the things that are God's. And boy, I'm I'm more persecuted under that one. Do we render unto God the things that are God's? Do we give God his tribute? I'm not talking about just giving of the church. That's important. But do we sacrifice to for the church? Do we give to the church? Are we here every time the church opens its doors? Do we do what we're supposed to do under God's law and that's go take care of other people, visit the sick and, and, and feed the hungry and uh, clothe the naked? Do we do all those things that God teaches us to do in here? Do we take time to look to him daily for all our needs? <coughs> it's, a great, it's a great lesson here that we, I could stay here all, all sermon on is render unto Caesar the things of Caesar, but render unto God the things that are God's. They calls for self examination on all of our parts. I'm not going to look into your heart and I'm not going to check your tax return. You do that on your own. But look Jesus tells us here that we're all on our own to make sure that we obey the law and to make sure that we do things for Him that we should be doing that He tells us to do. When they had heard these things they marvelled and left Him and went their way. He sent the Sadducees I and mean the Pharisees and the Herodians going. Next up, verse 23, that same day came to him the Sadducees, the other group of Jewish people leaders, and they had heard what he'd done to the Pharisees, and they came, and Sadducees, they were the more liberal group of of Jewish leaders, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. Remember back in that time, all they had was the Old Testament, and the Pharisees believed all that was in the Old Testament, plus they believed there was a lot of, of oral law, the law, law that Moses had handed down and all the traditions uh, that were handed down from generation to generation back in the Old Testament. They believed that all that was the law. Sadducees says, no, only the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Num- Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the law of Moses. That's what God gave to Moses, and, God, and Moses wrote it down and gave it to us. That's all we believe in, and we don't read anything in there about there being any resurrection. We don't believe in resurrection or angels or the Holy Spirit. We don't believe that. None of that's in those first five books, and we don't believe it. So they didn't believe in the resurrection. Look at the question they asked Christ. That same day came unto him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and ask him. And they went back to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and 5, one of the questions that Moses raises. And Moses says, if a man marries a woman, and he dies before they can have children, then the man's next younger unmarried brother has to step up and marry the widow. In other words, you know, if, 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 if my older brother Charles had married and died before he had children, it had been up to me to step up and marry his widow so that I can give children uh, in his name. And that was the law of Moses. He said younger brothers step up and replace their older brothers. If the older brother dies without giving children, they have to step up and marry the widow. That was the law back, given back in Moses in, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, saying, Master, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. That's the basic law. And then they go and give this hypothetical, and they know it's a silly hypothetical, and they're trying to, again, entangle Christ. Now, there were with us seven brothers, and the first, when he had married a wife, he died, and having no issue, he left the wife unto his younger brother. Likewise, the second, also the third, all the way down to the seventh. Each brother died without having children. So each of the younger brothers had to step up and marry the woman. Verse 28, Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her as their wife. You know, they were making a crazy hypothetical here to try to put Jesus on the spot with his, under his own ideal of a resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection and we'll be in heaven. We've got all these seven brothers that had had step up and married the same woman. None of them had children. Whose wife is she going to be when they get to heaven? <clears throat> That's another one of those questions, those hypothetical questions. But it's important that we see Jesus answer. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. That's a good statement. Ken. We err so many times when we don't know the scriptures and the power of God. Do we read our Bibles? Do we study? Do we come to church knowing the scriptures? Now, I don't know them. don't know them all clearly, and I know some a few better than others. I don't study enough. It's not just the ministers who study and not just the deacons who study, but every one of us needs to study our Bible. If I get up here and say something wrong, it's your duty in the church to correct me. Meet me after church. I hope you don't embarrass me publicly. But meet me after church and get me straightened out. And every now and then, you know, the, your best deacons and your best members will say, let me ask you about that subject you talked about today. <clears throat> Let's talk about that a little bit. And, and if I'm in error, we ought to correct it, and we ought to correct each other. But also, you will know the scriptures, and you won't fall in this boat that the, that the Sadducees have fallen into because they don't know their own scriptures. They believe the law of Moses, and yet we find out, they didn't really understand the law of Moses. He said, you err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And again, it's the duty of every one that's a child of God to know the scriptures. As best we can, we need to know them and study them and learn them. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. There is no marriage in heaven, what he tells us. If you read and study, you know marriage is for us today. It's for us and benefit of us here in life. It's not for heaven. Now, you're going to get to heaven, and we're going to know everybody. You're going to love everybody. It's not to say you won't know your mother and your father and your kids in heaven, but there's no male or female. There's no Jew or Gentile. There's no bond or free. We're all alike in Christ. We're spiritual beings in heaven. We'll have a bodily form. We tell that in the scriptures. (coughs) But there's not any marriage, and that's what he's telling them. That that's that's taught to you in the Old Testament, he says. But you guys don't believe in the resurrection, he said. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, spoken to, to, by God, which he, which Moses wrote down? He said this. He goes back into uh, 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 Exodus in the book of Exodus, chapter three, I believe it's five or six, verse five or six. But Exodus chapter three. When Moses, when Moses went to the burning bush and a God appeared to him in the burning bush and, he, and the, the, the voice out of the bush says, I am the Lord, I am the God of Abraham." He says, I am the God right now. And Abraham has been dead hundreds of years. And, and God speaks to him and says, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead but of the living. All these people that he's mentioned are still alive. They're not dead. He lets us know that after we die, we live again. The question that Job asked, you know, if if a man dies, shall he live again? Christ says, not only is that in the book of Moses, that's the very first words that God spoke to Moses. The first words we have recorded is when Moses went up to the burning bush and God spoke to him out of that burning bush, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He said, that proves there's a resurrection right there because God said these people are, have been resurrected and they are still alive physically. <laughs> and then when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Now, there's two questions. Now, the third one, and I'm partial to it too, but when the Pharisees heard this, they, that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. And then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question tempting him. Now they they brought in the lawyer, and this is not really the lawyer's like we know it today. But he did understand the law, the old law. These other two guys had missed it on the law; they didn't understand the laws. What Jesus said, you err not knowing the laws. The third one, a Pharisee, asked him, and a Pharisee lawyer, asking Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now the Pharisees they had all these; they believed all the law of Moses, you had to follow it. Plus, they believed all these. Uh, Other laws that that came up by tradition. You know, you're not supposed to work on Sunday. So they said, well, that means you can't even walk on Sunday, but you've got to walk a little bit. So they said, they end up finding you can walk about half a mile, but you can't walk more than that. That became the law by oral tradition. And they had hundreds of traditions. If you go back and read and study, and I've forgotten the amount, but it's like 636 laws under the Old Testament. And this Pharisee here, and the Pharisees knew. They couldn't follow all the laws. None of us could. None of us can. Peter tells us that our forefathers couldn't follow the law because it was so much of it and so massive and too much to remember. But that's what it takes to get to heaven is following the law. Following the law, you had to do that, so you had to know what the law was. And uh, Peter says nobody was able to follow it and tells it. That's what these Pharisees are asking. So they wanted to go to heaven, and they considered themselves righteous, so they came up with this idea about, well, you got to follow the law as many laws as you can. You got to follow the big ones like the Ten Commandments, and then you kind of do the best you can as they get lesser and lesser laws. You kind of do the best you can. So they're trying to figure out put him on the spot: which one's the greatest law? Give us the greatest, so we can figure out you know those that we have to do and those that we don't have to do. And of course, and, and Christ here tells us uh, with his answer, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus says, you know. He know, he's aware that under the Old Testament there was 630, 13 or 36, I've forgotten, laws under the Old Testament. Christ says, I'm going to make it easier for you. I'm taking those 636 and I'm reducing them to two. Two laws is all that we're under now. And you know what? I don't even always follow those. I'm not too good at following those. But he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. That's the first and the great commandment. That's easy. Number one, love the Lord with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. That's the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to the first, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, are the Ten Commandments still in place? They were in place in the Old Testament? Well, Christ has replaced those and says now there's only two, love the Lord and love your neighbor. You know, I think about 90% of us never always fulfill all of those. I don't love my neighbor as I should, and we're going to talk about that a little more in a minute with the fourth question. But I don't even love the God as, as, I, as I should. I, I don't get up and thank him every morning. I don't have him on my heart. Sometimes I want to put things ahead of him, you know. I remember I had a minister tell me one time close to me that says, I can always tell when the Dallas Cowboys kick off at noon on Sundays when they kick off at 3. By, I know who's going to be missing from the church, you know. And, and, and I'm as big a football fan as anybody, and I've been known sometimes to go to a Texas Tech game and not be as prepared on Sunday morning as I ought to be because I stayed up late getting frustrated at my Red Raiders. <coughs> two commandments we have to follow. you know, And, of course, we know, and Apostle Paul tells us, we can't even follow those two because we all sin and come short of the glory of God. He said, on these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Pharisees said, you know, you do, you, do, you do the big laws as best you can, and you do, I mean, you, you got to follow the big laws, and the lesser ones you, you do the best you can on, but they didn't enumerate them. But you go over to the book of James, and he says, tells us that you got to follow the law to get to heaven. <coughs> and if you violate even one of the least of all, one of the least, then you violated the entire law. How many of us are not guilty of that? We couldn't get there if we had to follow the law. Thank goodness Christ said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law, ever jot and ever tittle. He fulfilled the law for us. for us. That's that's another one of those things that we take for granted. There's three questions that were asked. I want to spend a little more time on the fourth question. It's over in Luke. The four in which Christ faced hostile questions. It's over in Luke. And in Luke chapter 10, <clears throat> and uh, he's, uh, he's been, Christ has been preaching, going through the uh, area of, of Israel, preaching one, and he sends out messengers, send out ministers. In verse 22, he says some things that lead up into what we're about to talk about. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is. No man knoweth who I am, is what he's saying no one knows who I am but the Father and who the Father is but the, and, and, and no one knows who the Father is but the Son and he to him whom the Son will reveal him. Christ first of all says we've got an exclusive club. you got to know God and you got to know Christ. But he says no one knows Jesus except God the Father and no one knows God the Father except the Son. You've got kind of an exclusive little country club here. Nobody else can get in. You're not going to know Christ No one knows Christ except the Father, and no one knows Father except Christ, and them to whom he revealeth. We don't know Christ until Christ reveals stuff to us. He reveals to us who he is. He reveals to us who God is. Then he goes on and says, sometimes we say, you know, if you don't know the Lord, you better get to know the Lord. Christ here says, you're not going to know him until I reveal him to you. He turned unto his disciples and privately said, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. Now he's talking to you this morning. You know, I don't know who's in the Lamb's book of life. I don't know who's a child of God. But I'm giving signs that nobody's opened that book of Lamb's life yet. Won't open it until the end of time. It's sealed with seven seals. But he says we can tell by looking at his disciples who follow him. I don't believe you'd be here in this building on a church on Sunday morning if you're not a child of God. You know, you're here this morning because something has touched your heart and told you to be here. Something has touched your heart. Christ has put something in your heart and revealed to you to be here. And this is who he's talking to, and he's talking to you. Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. You see something through your heart. Your eyes see something through your heart that Christ put there, or you wouldn't be here this morning. That tells me that, you know, like I said, I don't know. But I have a blessed assurance that everyone in this room is a child of God, or you wouldn't be here. He said, For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. Christ picks and chooses who He reveals things to. He doesn't know we don't know why. He said, But bless your father, for you have chosen to Hide these things from the wise and prudent and reveal them unto babes. There's a lot of wise men and women in this world who don't see the things that you see because Christ has opened your heart and your eyes to see them. Now with that in mind, that's what He's just talked about and preached about. We go into verse 25 of Luke 10. And again, you'll see why I like this one real quickly. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let me go through this real quickly. And he said unto him, What are you reading the law? Christ asked him, What are you reading the law? How readest thou? And he answered and he says, Well, I'm supposed to love the Lord thy God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And Christ answered him and says, Well, thou hast answered right. Do this, and thou shalt live. He didn't say about eternal life. He was asking a question about eternal life. But Christ answered, Do this, and thou shalt live. But he, and that's the attorney, willingly to justify himself, asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered him said, and he tells the parable of the good Samaritan. The man went down to Jericho, and he was passed by a priest and a rabbi who, who didn't help him out, but along came a good Samaritan. A Samaritan was an enemy to the Jewish people. So this is an enemy of the Jewish people, and it's a Samaritan that helps out the young Jew there and, and picks him up and binds him up and saves him and carries him into town to be cared for. And Jesus said, now which one of these is your neighbor? And he goes, well, the man who helped him. The Jew, Jew didn't like this because he'd hated Samaritans. They were taught to hate Samaritans. Samaritans were the half-breeds. They, had go, they were the Jewish people of the lost tribes up in the northern part that had gone and intermarried with the Assyrians, and they'd lost their ethnic purity. Of course, we know that doesn't matter to Christ, but it mattered to the Jewish people. They thought you ought to keep your purity as an ethic as a Jew. That's who the Samaritans was, and Jews hated them. They wouldn't even talk to them, speak to them. The Bible's full of that, how they hated the Samaritans. And yet Christ said, in this case, the Samaritan was your neighbor, and you're to love him as you love yourself. Let me back back up now. Now that we kind of know that story, you all know the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, We have laws in in the state of Texas, even the Good Samaritan laws. If you stop on the side of the road and help someone out who's in strain, you don't have any duty to them, you don't have any obligation, you help them out because of the goodness of your heart There's laws to protect you from being liable on that other law. That's the good Samaritan law. We know what that is. Let's go back and let's look at this question, though, a little deeper because God has revealed stuff to you that he hadn't revealed unto others. He said, you know, there's great kings and prophets who desired to see the things that you are now allowed to see. Start off, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to get eternal life? Do I have to hear the gospel? Do I have to believe the gospel? Do I have to confess? To repent? Do I gotta join the church? Do I gotta be baptized? Do I gotta go feed those that are hungry? Gotta put clothes on those that are naked. Do I gotta visit those in prison? What do I gotta do? Do I gotta go to church? Do I gotta give to the church? How much do I have to give? What all do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Implies you gotta do something. This is the struggle that Armenians have their whole life. If you read the Bible, we know that there's many places where it says God uh, predestinated us. Go to Romans 8. God predestined foreknew us, predestinated us, and glorified us. We were predestinated before the foundation of the world. There's preached several times in there. Go to Ephesians. It talks about how we're predestinated. That's what Calvinists believe is the predestination. (coughs) And that's what he means when you inherit eternal life. And then Jacobus Arminius came along and said, I don't believe what Calvin wrote. You've got to do something to get to heaven. You've got to do something or believe something. You've got to believe in God. You've got to ask him into your heart. You've got to do all these things I talked about. Join the church, be baptized, repent, confess. This is the struggle they've had because you look and you go, well, both doctrines are taught in this Bible. The doctrine of Calvinism is taught here and the doctrine of Arminianism is taught here. Does Christ save us you know, before the foundation of the world or do we have to save ourselves? That's what splits everybody. This book is one book, but we have two different ways to read it and interpret it. That's the exact question he's asking here. Look let's look. It says, "What do I have to do? What m- must I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life?" Let's look at the question. Why is this a tempting question? Said the lawyer, tempted him. "What shall I do?" It means you gotta go do something. That's the Armenian belief. I gotta do something to get eternal life. I gotta do something. So what do I have to do? And then he says, to inherit eternal life. Now wait a minute. To inherit eternal life. What do you have to do to inherit something? If your son or you've got a father or mother that died and left a will, and you inherit, what did you do to get that? You didn't do anything. Somebody had to die, but it wasn't you. If you die to get it, you don't get it. You don't get to hear anything. He's asking a question. This question is, what do I have to do to get something that I don't have to do anything to get? We've got both Arminianism and Calvinism in this one question. What do I have to do so that I can inherit eternal life? That's why it's a trick question. (coughs) We know, I believe, we believe both sides of that, don't we? We believe that, yes, God wrote, God wrote our names in the last book of life before the foundation of the world. Our names are in that book. Not a name will be put in. Not a name will be taken out until it's opened at the end of time. We believe that God gave us eternal life before the foundation of the world. He picked and chose, elected. That's the doctrine of election us before the foundation of the world. But we said, I said, we also believe the other side of that, don't we? Yes, we do. That's what the Bible is about. It's about teaching us about life today and tomorrow. We want to live in this world and have life. Remember, I said he didn't answer the question, did he? If I want to have life, then you follow God's law. You honor God. You take care of him. You take care of your fellow man, and God will bless you today and tomorrow. He will save you from this wicked world by following him. He's going to give you blessings and peace of mind that you've not had by following him. Now, you're not going to get eternal life. You're sinners. you you cannot follow the law. You have no ability to follow the law. None of us do. Nobody's been able to follow the law. Even those two laws, love the Lord and love your neighbor. None of us can do that. We don't do it right. We fall short all the time. If that's if I've got to follow the law, even those two to get to heaven, then I'm bound for hell. I will not get there. Because of the love and mercy, unconditional love of Christ before the foundation of the world, I feel like I have eternal life. I have the blessed assurance. Do so I have an absolute guarantee? No, I can't look in that book. Nobody will until Christ opens it at the end of time. But I have the blessed assurance that my name's in that book. I have the blessed assurance by you being here this morning, your name is in that book. You're a child of God because he put your name in the book in spite of our sins, in spite of the fact that we all failed and come short. But now that we're here in this world, this is a road book for life. This is a road book for life you to learn how to live today and tomorrow and that's what he's teaching here. This is a road book for life, except that's when you go read the Bible, it, it, when he uses the word saved and salvation, sometimes it's talking about eternal salvation, but probably 80% of the time he's talking about salvation today, time salvation, today and tomorrow. How do I get through this week? How do I get through when my mother and father dies? How do I get through when my wife dies and my kids have trouble? How do I get through those? Christ says, turn to me and I'll lead you to them. This is a guidebook for life. A guidebook for life. And that's why this question is so, he's asking both sides of this doctrine question. Do I have eternal life because you predestinated me or do I have eternal life because I have to work for it? He says, what do I do? One, to get the other. It's an inconsistent question. You can't ask a question like that. That's why it's a trick one. And so Christ doesn't take the bait. He just says, well, what does the law say? Well, he says, well, the law says I love the Lord with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, love myself. Christ said, well, you have answered that correctly. Do this and thou shalt live. He didn't answer about eternal life. Do these laws and you'll live. You'll have life today and tomorrow in this world. And then he goes on and gives this example. He, and the lawyer said, willing to justify himself, said, And who's my neighbor? And Christ answering said, And then he gave this good Samaritan. We know the story of the good Samaritan. But let's look at it a little closer. Christ said, A man from Jerusalem went down to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, his clothes, and wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. What's half dead? Half dead. How are you half dead? Dead is an absolute term. You're either dead or you're alive. You're dead or alive. And that's just, it may be separated by just a moment in time, the time you go from being alive to dead, but that's absolute. You're one or the other. You can't be half dead. When uh, Adam and Eve took a bite out of that apple, what did the Lord tell them they would do when they ever ate out of that fruit of the tree? Thou shalt surely die. Did they die? Not physically. He told us they were dead and trespassing in his sins. <coughs> you know, uh, Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians, You hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and trespasses in sins. Christ quickens you. He calls you. He makes you born again, not you. He makes you born again. You hath he quickened who were dead, you were dead spiritually. We learned that there's a physical life and there's a spiritual life. When, when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they died spiritually. They didn't die physically. and That's another one of those things that people love to play with and get confused on. But when we hear it, he departed, leaving him half dead. I believe the man was spiritually dead. And this is a, a parable. This is not a real life story. This is a parable that Christ is using to teach us. Using parables, Christ always took some things that we have a hard time understanding and gave us simplest, simplistic facts, so that we could understand a measure. We can take the simple facts and understand, and that's what the Good Samaritan is. It's a good story, and we have it in the law today. Good Samaritans, but the Good Samaritan is a parable. It tells us he's telling us there's something deeper here we need to see. This man was half dead, in verse thirty-one, and by chance. And by chance, there came along a certain priest. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, if I'm laying there like this man and I'm in a ditch and I'm half dead and I'm crying out and I look up and I go, Hey, here come a priest. I'm saved. That probably may have been what he was thinking. I'm saved naturally today. I'm not going to die here in this ditch. I'm saved. Along came a priest to save him. A man of the cloth. How could it get any better than that? Come buddy, come along and save me. <coughs> and yet the priest went around him. Man had a chance to be saved. You ever have people that just says, you mean you believe God doesn't give a, somebody a chance to be saved? This guy had a chance to be saved and didn't get it, did he? By a man of the cloth, and he didn't get it, did he? It's Physical salvation that we're talking about here, but there's a deeper meaning going on here. It said, by chance, home came a priest and didn't save him. Verse 32, and likewise a Levite, another man of God, another man of the cloth, came along, and he says, and likewise, that means also by chance, <laughs> along came a Levite that was at the place that came by, took, it, looked on him, and passed by on the other side. He's had two men of the cloth, two chances to be saved physically, except I think we're talking about spiritually here. If you're depending on a preacher to save you eternally, then you're in real trouble. Us preachers can't do that any more than anybody else. Jesus is the only one that can save you. That our salvation, our uh, the job of the Savior. There's only one opening; it's filled. Not only is it filled by Christ; it's already finished. It's already been done. That part is over with. If you're trying to fill that job, anybody's trying to fill that job, it's, you're too late for the job. It's already filled, and not only that, it's already taken. And not only that, it's already finished. Your eternal salvation is finished. And he said, if "This guy had two chances to be saved." And both of them passed up by men of the cloth, people who we thought would have helped, who us in our, our minds would have helped. Verse 33. But along came a certain Samaritan. This is a beautiful picture of Christ. If you're depending on somebody in this world to save you, you're not going to be saved spiritually. But along, those came by by chance. But along comes a certain Samaritan. Christ didn't come to us as a matter of chance. He didn't come to us because we asked him. He came to us when we were in a terrible condition and saved us on his own. They came as a matter of certainty. Again, your name was written in the last book of life before the foundation of the world. Christ knew who he came to save for. You know, people say, well, then, there's not going to be very many people in heaven. There's going to be a host of people in heaven. Is there going to be some in hell? Yes. that He didn't choose to save. Yes. But when we when, when heaven is described, it's described in endless terms by the sands of the seashore and the stars of the sky. So many you can't count. That's the way heaven is pictured. When we talk about hell, it talks about a lake of fire. It's always a contained amount. There's going to be more people in heaven than you should know, but you'll know all of them because you'll have perfect knowledge then. But along came this certain Samaritan as he journeyed. He came to where he was when he saw him, and he had compassion on him. Christ came and found us desperate. Nobody would save us. He found us in desperate shape. We we're sinners. Uh, we were not his friend. We were his enemy. Over in, in Romans chapter 5, it says, When we were yet his enemy, he saved us. Well, that's the way this Jew is. He's the enemy of the Samaritan. And yet the Samaritan goes out of his way to save him. It says, He bound him up, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Oil is symbolic of the Spirit, wine is symbol of Christ's blood. It says he didn't pour them on him. He said he poured them in him, poured them in him, and that's the way Christ does to us. He pours the spirit of us in there, puts his blood, and takes our place. He him on his beast, brought him and took care of him. And the next day when he departed, he took out two pence and gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, whatever thou spendest more, when I come again, I'll repay you. He says, I'm bringing him in, I've saved him, I'm paying his bill, I'm paying for all his sins. And by the way, I'm going to go away for a while and then I'm going to come back and if he sins some more, I'm paying that debt too. I'm paying all the debt you owe before I called you and after I put my spirit in you, if you sin again, I'm coming back and paying for that too. The beautiful picture of Christ in this parable. The beautiful picture of how our eternal salvation works. If we, like, Just like this man that was saved on the road to Jericho, he was saved physically. That's why it's a parable. We understand it. But he's telling us about spiritually. Christ comes and saves us spiritually. We're his enemy. We are natural enemies to him. We don't want to do what Christ is. We don't want to follow the law. It's too big of a problem. I've got more stuff. I want to watch TV. I want to go party. I want to go drinking, smoking, gambling. i got all these things I'd rather do in the world. And he comes and puts something in my heart. So now when I do those things, I still may do some of them, you know what, I feel guilty. I have a different feeling that I didn't have previously. I do now. That's what Christ does when he comes and pours oil and wine in you. He heals you and he says, I'm paying his debt and I'm going to go away. And if he runs up any more debt before I get back, I'm paying that too. Christ now asks the man, Which of these three thinkest thou was neighbor among him that fell among the thieves? We all fall among thieves. All the time. And Christ comes and saves us. And he said, he that showed mercy upon him, Jesus said unto him, go and thou do likewise. He just got through talking before this about the Lord shows stuff to his people that he doesn't show to other people. He doesn't show to kings and princes. He's showing us to this. This young your lawyer comes along, tries to ask this strict question. And he goes and says, follow the law. And he says, now, you do this and thou shalt live. Now the lawyer asked a question about eternal life. Christ didn't answer that. But then he goes on and gives this parable in which he absolutely answers our eternal salvation. We are saved by a good Samaritan who owes us no favor no debt, had, has no reason to save us at all, but because of his love and his, his unconditional love and his mercy. He pours out his love on us and saves us eternally. The least we ought to do is say thank you. Your salvation, eternal salvation, is complete and over. Now, how do we say thank you? You go listen to the gospel. You follow the gospel. You join the church. You get baptized. You go give to those people that uh, that are starving. You go feed those that are hungry. You go clothe those that are naked. (coughs) You follow Christ. You say thank you to him. You know, we always say thank you different ways. You know, when I was a kid and my parents gave me something I wanted for Christmas, I was thankful. I was so happy, but I was playing with the toy or something or too busy to say thank you. But my mother and dad, you know, that didn't stop them because I didn't say thank you. It didn't stop them from giving to me and taking care of me. They loved me with an unconditional love whether I said thank you or not. You know, it does something when I would go to mom or dad and say, hey, thank you. And As I got older, I learned to do that. I'd go saying, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, how good does it make you feel when your child comes and tells you thank you? But one more that's bigger than that. <clears throat> when you go up and say thank you to your mom, make sure she's in a group of her friends. And you go and you wrap your arms around her leg and say thank you, mom. You're the best mom in the world. Thank you, dad. In front of each other's men, thank you, dad. You're a great dad. You know how good that makes you feel if, that, if they do that, when that happens like that? Christ is the same way. He loves you unconditionally whether you tell him thank you or not. But when you come and tell him, when you say thank you, then that means more. But when you say it publicly, like you're doing today by coming to church, then he likes it even more. What you're doing today coming to church is a good work. It's not going to save you eternally. You're already saved eternally. But it's going to save you timely. The Lord will bless you. He may not bless you openly as we, we think about sometimes. He'll pick the time and manner. And he'll give you a blessing. He'll give you a blessing for coming to church, for reading his Bible, for studying it, for helping your fellow man. He'll bless you for that. You ever go to him in prayer sometime and you think, well, he didn't answer prayer. I, I prayed yesterday and he hadn't answered it yet. About six months later, you look back and say, that problem is gone. What happened to it? The Lord will pick the way to do it and he'll do it privately. and He'll do it in a manner that'll help you so much and relieve so much off of you. We serve a wonderful Lord who saved us, called us, (coughs) saved us before the foundation of the world. He calls us when he's ready in time like he did the Apostle Paul, like he did all those in the Bible. He picked a time in which he made them born again. He does us the same way. But he's already saved you eternally if we will follow the guidelines that he's given us in this book. This is a book of life, not eternal life. It tells you about eternal life. This book doesn't give you eternal life. It gives you life. I appreciate your kind attention, and my prayer is the Lord would richly bless you.